I'm John Patterson, and this is The Professor. The Professor is a new bi-weekly radio show in which I will have a conversation with a Union County College faculty member. The interview will last for roughly an hour, and we will discuss their life and teaching, their subject matter, and why that subject is so important. This first episode is entitled The Piercing Light of Reason and features Dr. Allison Brown. Dr. Brown is currently a professor of philosophy and has also been a professor of history at Union County College. I spoke with her on February 14th in her office on the Cranford campus. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brown. So I guess where I want to start the conversation is um, if you could just talk about your early life a bit and what your first pull towards philosophy was, maybe even before you knew what philosophy was. Um, early on, I didn't know what uh, philosophy was. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I recognize now um, probably has always drawn me to philosophy, uh, John, is that I've always been curious. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been said of philosophy th- that it's about wonder. Right. Um, uh, consideration of uh, uh, possibilities, uh, not being locked into one way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was young, I was uh, curious about maybe about scientific issues and and such, and um, was unwilling to accept uh, answers always, um, uh, uh, rather. Not always, but in many cases where I was perplexed about often social issues or social problems, why people were being treated a certain way that seemed to me to be unjust or unfair, you know, issues of inequality, but often scientific issues and um, uh, just like to explore, like to tinker with things, mechanical things, and and I think that... um, you know, that was my earliest pull mm-hmm. that I can recall. Do you think that um, your curiosity was uh, fostered in your education growing up? Early on, not so. Mm-hmm. Neither of my parents had a college education. Mm-hmm. Uh, they grew up at a time when, um, uh, finishing high school, they went out to work to mm-hmm. help their families, you know, uh, their extended families, and um, so uh, early on in terms of growing up um, outside of school, there wasn't any great uh, influence or stimulus, but um, in uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, in the educational system, it was more rote. Memorization right. and uh, and following uh, what you were told. Right. Um, but my curiosity was was still uh, there, and, uh, and I was a good student. Uh, but I don't think that I was particularly uh, pushed, um, you know, in any particular direction. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I know you mentioned growing up in the 50s and 60s, but I don't know that it's changed that much in public education, really. I feel like we're not always encouraged to ask those sorts of questions. Right. Right. Um, you mentioned, again, growing up in the 60s, and you had mentioned before that um, a lot of your philosophical concerns started with concerns about social justice. And how much do you think that those two 
Thackeray played in, because it was a big time of social change. I think, I think uh, you know, uh, uh, efforts uh, to promote uh, civil rights mm -hmm. and, and social justice, um, uh, those were, were big concerns of mine. Um, you know, in the 60s, uh, through television, um, distant events, at least, you know, in the American South, were brought up close and were inescapable. Um, and uh, uh, I think uh, that provoked me. Also, getting a religious education mm -hmm. um, uh, provoked a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, being exposed to um, people of different religions as I was growing up stimulated my curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I think those um, threads, you know, together. Can you talk a little bit more about that religious education? Well, I grew up in a community um, uh, that was uh, almost completely Christian, mm -hmm. and um, my family uh, was Jewish. And so I had a, uh, you know, I was out of the mainstream. Right. Um, and I was exposed to my friends' uh, religious beliefs and practices, and, mm -hmm. and uh, those differences were highlighted for me, uh, being a minority. And um, I was always quite sensitive to seeing inequality, mm -hmm. and, you know, social inequality and social injustice, and, and uh, you know, was curious about why somebody should be singled out because of the color of their skin or uh, because uh, through no fault of their own they were born into a particular set of circumstances. Um, and so I question that. Mm -hmm. How, um, obviously we're in a big time now where there's a renewed interest in activism and in civil rights. Um, how do you think that philosophy can help ground people's activism? Well, I think philosophy forces us. I mean, a lot of people, John, think of philosophy as an academic discipline. Right. And indeed it is, um, but I see it more as a life survival skill. Mm -hmm. um, critical thinking, an effort to determine what claims we should accept or reject or suspend judgment about until we have adequate information enables us to um, be guided by beliefs or opinions which are true or which more closely approximate the truth than others. So I see it as an effort to, um, you know, uh, to find uh, beliefs and values and principles that can guide us mm -hmm. to um, to um, how to live our right. lives. And it's also about problem solving. Um, you talked a lot about how we accept these truths without really thinking critically about them necessarily. Um, or these alleged truths. These alleged truths, yes. And I think that is also a very big problem now in that especially with all the fake news and this idea of people believing what they want to believe and believing things that already support their bias. But there's also, I find this sense that I'll read a news article 
and I'll wonder how biased it is, and then I'll try to read something from the other side, and you just get this, where is the truth? So I'm just curious what your advice would be into how we can discern past the bias to what is actually closer to the truth. I think that requires a real effort. I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, you know, when we're dealing with objective uh, matters, mm-hmm. objective issues. Um, there are often good sources right. to gather information. Um, and we don't necessarily go to an op-ed columnist or someone who uh, has a point of view that they're an advocate for. But, um, you know, we can read people with expertise in mm-hmm. the area, um, journal articles, uh, not necessarily by academics, but. Uh, by people who have a background uh, and training in the area. Um, I think we have to be careful, even though um, Wikipedia is a curated uh, uh, site. um, You know, there are other reference sources. Um, We have to be careful about online uh, because anybody can publish anything and and, uh, uh, put fancy insignias on their website and... uh, claim that there's authority right. and expertise behind it. But there are ways, you know, to check, um, uh, you know, when we're dealing with uh, objective issues, right. um, issues about factual matters. Um, it's when we get to, uh, well, th- there's often misrepresentation, as you noted, and with regard to facts, though, people believing what they um, want to believe, um, what uh, Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, referred to as truthiness. Right. Um, that's when it's so um, uh, dangerous and so so frustrating. Um, and when Trump's counselor and advisor Kellyanne Conway um, takes issue with fact with facts and says, "Well, there are alternative facts." No, a fact is a claim that is true. Right. Um, and uh, there aren't alternative facts. Um, we can dispute claims or assertions to determine whether they're factual, I mean, sorry, whether they are true and therefore a fact. Right. Um, uh, factual matters can be controversial. We can disagree about the location of a particular restaurant or store right. and um, then we'll ha- we'll get evidence to support our claims um, but whether that store is located on first street or third street we can determine there are agreed upon criteria and standards that we operate with when it comes to um, matters that involve n- non uh, factual or subjective matters, mm-hmm. things where values are involved. Right. Um, you know, we've always known that there aren't agreed upon standards mm-hmm. for settling them, but about factual matters, the, the, the post, the notion that we're in a post-truth era, yeah. I think, is uh, is frightening, and should drive us all to think more critically, right. and 
adopt what I would call the philosophical approach. Tell me more about the philosophical approach. The philosophical approach is one where um, we don't simply accept beliefs or opinions or claims at face value, but we investigate, we evaluate, we use our reasoning, um, we subject claims, opinions, even our own opinions, not just those of others, we subject them to what I would call the piercing light of reason. Mm -hmm. We ask for evidence. And a student of philosophy, um, which we should all be, uh, is someone who demands support or evidence or reasons for accepting uh, an opinion. And so we do what we uh, can characterize as framing arguments, demanding uh, support or reasons. Arguments are all about proof. Mm-hmm. They're an, an effort to prove something. Right. Um, and very often our reasoning is swayed by emotion, by the rhetorical force of words rather than their logical force. Right. And in philosophy what we demand is um, rational support. Do you think emotion should play any role at all in um, in determining the validity of a supposition? I think we have to recognize the place or role for emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets back what to what we desire, what we want. Um, Something is not true simply because we want it to be true. That's fallacious reasoning uh, known uh, as uh, wishful wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether I want it to be my day off or not, it's a working day. And no matter how much I might wish or want it, that has no relation mm-hmm. to the truth. Um, in other matters, subjective or non-factual matters, um, there's a relationship between truth and what you happen to believe. For mm-hmm. instance, you might like or love chocolate ice cream, and I might prefer vanilla. So with regard to what's the best flavor of ice cream, or the prettiest color or the most pleasing symphony, we can differ and both be right. But what I would say, going back to your original question, um, is I think our emotions often help to push us or move us in a direction where we choose the things that matter to us or mm-hmm. the things that concern us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, th- I think I'd like to bring up, you mentioned bias, you know. In logic and critical thinking we talk about cognitive bias. I know biases we can refer to as prejudices. Right. Uh, 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 taking a position, holding an opinion 
not based on any evidence or information, but um, uh, very often out of feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, But cognitive biases are pretty frightening when you think about it. Um, Psychologists have argued, and you probably know this better than than I do, John, that there are unconscious features of human psychology which predispose us to think a certain way. And so very often, for instance, we'll believe that claim which is consistent with what we want to believe, belief bias, or we'll inordinately weight evidence that supports our belief, confirmation bias, and discount evidence that is against or opposite to what we might believe. So, yeah, I think emotion can play a role, but what the philosophical approach teaches us to do is to be aware of where our emotions are, you know, how they're working, and to be able to distinguish the emotive or rhetorical force of words or language Mm -hmm. from the logical, rational force of words and language. I guess um, it gets back to the limits of our ability to reason as humans. I was just wondering if you could talk about how we could be aware of those limits and attempt to overcome those limits and where there is no overcoming those limits. I can't really address the latter point, you know, or issue about, you know, the limits uh, uh, of our uh, reasoning. I would like to speak, though, to what I see as a... um, I don't know how much of it is biological or cultural, but I think we live in a culture that even when we're educated and go through, you know, through from elementary to secondary uh, education, um, there isn't, as we talked about earlier, there mm-hmm. isn't a real emphasis on on thinking and using one's reasoning and following where reasoning might lead us. There's always you know, the influence of others and um, feeling societal and cultural pressures. I mean, America, I think, someone whose background is is in history and the history of ideas, America is a place where um, anti-intellectualism has held sway and, and, um, you know, people who are thoughtful and raise questions are even by their teachers yeah. you know they don't conform the teachers got to get on with the curriculum there's a lesson plan so that starts early on right you know it's squelch um, the motor that drives philosophy that powers it is doubt or skepticism mm-hmm. and doubt and skepticism um, can be an obstacle Right. For many people, and and it's it it pushes you 
outside of the norm, you don't conform. Right. And kids learn pretty early to conform. There are rewards. There's success. Acceptance often not just by your peers, but by your teachers. Right. So you get signals. Um, and then culturally, I mean, look at the role uh, the media and, you know, look at news organizations, how they've been absorbed in the last few decades. Uh, uh, broadcast news, um, you know, uh, in the golden age, in the 50s, uh, Edward R. Murrow, you know, truth seekers. ABC, NBC, CBS were absorbed by these these um, vast uh, entertainment conglomerates and and communications networks where business is driving and profit uh, is driving, um, you know, the goals and and news organizations um, uh, fall under entertainment. Right. So the quest, you know, being you ask questions, uh, it 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 can uh, cut a company's or corporation's profits, and and those questions are not asked, yeah. and. I think we see now more than ever uh, with the new administration, um, you know, uh, concerns about the independence of journalists or, you know, whether they'll be able to continue to function as the fourth estate. Right. You know, uh, uh, I don't know that they're objective, but in some ways I think they're far more objective than other uh, slices of our. Um, of our uh, uh, society, or or you know, brokers in you know political and economic and social, and, um, and um, so so, I think that um, raising questions is absolutely essential. I I saw yesterday uh, that over the weekend, um, Stephen Miller, mm -hmm. who is a counselor close advisor to President Trump um, was on some of the Sunday talk shows and he uh, was asked about the travel ban um, of the Trump administration and the court uh, cases as they're proceeding, especially the, the Ninth Circuit, you know, the mm -hmm. appeals court right. um, um, decision that was unanimous that, uh, you know, let the temporary restraining order on the travel ban stand, and he said, um, we'll see that, you know, uh, the president um, has a right to do this, and uh, these policies and his authority with regard to immigration and national security mm -hmm. should not be questioned. And that, that's kind of chilling. Yeah. It's very so, that's what, what, um, that, when I hear things like that, uh, it it makes me uh, it heartens me to know that philosophy is being taught, right. and uh, and that I might have a role in in um, stimulating some some students to raise questions. And how do you go about that? What is the what is the process that you would say you use to encourage people to ask these sort of questions that maybe we could also use? Um, I think we begin uh, 
by talking about what truth is, mm-hmm. you know, and and distinguishing factual matters from non-factual matters, and and letting people know that the only way to, if not discover what's true, right. I mean it, but cast aside or um, uh, rule out that which is not true and is therefore not worthy of being believed is to be perennially on guard, critical, mm-hmm. and use one's reasoning. I mean, getting back to your uh, question of a moment ago, you know, how do we guard, you know, against this and develop it? Um, I don't think, I don't think. Um, Reasoning and questioning should be off limits about anything, right. even you know religious teachings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually something that I wanted to touch on too. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with even the idea of studying philosophy because they're afraid that it might upset their spiritual and religious convictions. Right. I'm just curious what your answer to that would be. So what I'd say to that, John, is that if you're convictions are so fragile that raising questions would threaten them, then you need, you seriously need to be asking those questions. Um, I would turn it around and say it might even strengthen your convictions because you've explored them and looked at them more closely. Um, You know, in... in, um, the introductory course in philosophy, we talk about what philosophy is in the very first week or two of class, and the way I try to answer that question, because philosophy is not your common, right. uh, everyday uh, area of uh, study, and so a lot of students haven't been exposed to it, and they have often a preconceived notion of something Hmm, distant and conceptual and theoretical to the point of the ridiculous, you know, asking right. questions that don't really matter. You know, somebody like uh, Aristophanes in ancient Greece talking about Socrates who had his head up in the clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I try to make sense of what philosophy is or answer that question by comparing philosophy and science and religion. And what philosophy and science have in common is a search for truth via uh, reasoning. Now, you could say that there are some overlapping questions uh, between philosophy and science and religion, but ultimately, not that one doesn't engage in reasoning mm-hmm. and 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 you know deliberate careful reasoning in in religion uh, but ultimately when it comes to uh, belief in God for most of us that requires a leap of faith right whereas I would distinguish philosophy and science from religion um, with this claim that there is nothing immune to being tested Mm -hmm. and questioned 
accept no claim philosophy and science uh, will tell us unless it's been subjected to critical scrutiny, right. demand evidence or proof. Now, philosophy can't work the way, because of the, the subject matter um, that it deals with, it, it doesn't you know, lend itself to scientific experimentation right. where, you know, we say that its truths are highly verifiable mm -hmm. through experimentation. But in philosophy, we practice thought experiments. You know, a lot of what we see in Plato's Republic involves thought experiments. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what if, right. hypothetical situations, imaginary situations and then testing them through arguments, chains of reasoning. Mm -hmm. See if they can be confirmed or disconfirmed. You know, philosophy is a public enterprise just like science is. Right. You know, it, it requires testing by others. So arguments are are made public and then are open to scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So that's what we need to do. We need to champion reasoning, not squelching. Right. Because you're talking about the relationship between um, philosophy and science, and in doing some research about philosophy for this interview, what I encountered a lot was there almost seems to be sort of this love-hate relationship there at some point, it seems, because I think a lot of people in the scientific community seem f feel frustrated that it's not as quantifiable, you can't have a hypothesis and run an experiment and right. to prove or disprove. But at the same time, the whole scientific method is based on philosophy, in a sense. Right. Um, I don't know what my question is yeah. in that. I just um, I think that I mean science stands or falls um, based on certain. Certain conceptions of, you know, uh, what a fact is and what an objective, uh, uh, you know, test is and um, data, how reliable data are. And philosophy, you know, uh, has a lot to offer science in terms of philosophy of science and scrutiny of, of the notion of objectivity and truth and maybe that the notion of truth is is uh, is a myth right. that science operates with. So um, I think philosophy um, can be very productive, mm. a productive encounter and domain of inquiry for, for scientists. Right. Um, I know that you also used to teach history at UCC. I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between philosophy and history. Well, many philosophers uh, have talked about, uh, you know, theories of history, you know, uh, uh, Oswald uh, Spengler and, um, and uh, you know, philosophers like Hegel, philosophy of history, you know, uh, um, you know, what is the direction of history? Um, are we making progress? Right. Um, the notion, the enlightenment notion that through reason, human beings endowed with reason have the capacity, going all, all the way back to the ancient Greeks, mm -hmm. you know, this gift, um, 
you know, geekly human ability to reason uh, uh, is a gift that enables us ultimately in the um, 18th and 19th, well, 18th century in particular in, uh, in uh, Western Europe, the notion that, you know, um, we can solve all problems. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then by the end of the 19th century, uh, as you see um, in the beginning of the 20th, when when we're not making progress, but when we we think through the alliance system, of, you know, that exists in Western Europe, that we can prevent uh, wars and and human carnage, and instead we descend yeah. into uh, uh, bloody carnage and, and barbarism and. You know, when you can have in, in three months' time uh, so many uh, millions killed at the battle, battle of the Somme, mm. and, and you hardly move trench lines more than, you know, a, a, a few yards at a time. Right. Uh, um, so um, I think that um, Philosophy is gives us an approach by which to examine the assumptions mm -hmm. and methods of historians uh, uh, and theologians and scientists. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think philosophers should also be subject to that kind of scrutiny. I mean, up, what do we mean by truth? What do we mean by uh, wisdom? Mm -hmm. You know, what constitutes truth? Right. You know, we've got to examine our own claims. What does constitute truth? That's a broad question. It's a pretty broad question. <laughs> I mean, is it when everything fits together and coheres in mm -hmm. a certain way? Is it, is it the notion that there is some objective, universal, absolute truth that... Um, that's out there that we need to discover, mm -hmm. well, how could we possibly know it? Right. Um, especially when different parties claim there are opposing or incongruent absolute truths. Right. And I think we see this I in the domain of philosophical inquiry that we call ethics, mm -hmm. you know, when we... Um, Examine what is right and wrong to do. Um, you know, since there are different beliefs about right and wrong in different societies, um, so people have different moral codes or moralities, the question becomes well, does it therefore follow that that means that there are no universal objective moral absolutes any moral truths right um, well just because people have different beliefs about what's right and wrong it doesn't follow that because of that that there are no moral absolutes we just might not recognize them right you know but then how do you how do you uh, how do you live? Determine, you know. How do you, how do you determine? And, and I think it's probably the most important uh, set of questions that we can be exploring. You know, how should we live our lives? Yeah. You know, how, do, how should we conduct ourselves in relation to others? Right. How should we treat each other? How do we begin to, um, I guess we address this with just 
um, by constantly asking the questions and challenging our pains and the pains of others. But um, something you've spoken a lot about is doubt. And I think that doubt is such an uncomfortable thing in our culture. And there are these two very, which almost seem like contrasting values, which is having these beliefs that you stand up for, that you would die for, that you're steadfast in, but at the same time having humility and having an open right. mind. Yeah, I mean, and I think the figure, the historical figure of Socrates reflects mm -hmm. that. I mean, here's a man who was willing to die for the opportunity to reason, to ask questions, to search for answers. And when that was foreclosed, mm -hmm. when um, certain forces, the authorities in Athenian society, um, felt threatened by him. And we see this in science too, the clash between Galileo right. in the early 17th century and the uh, church in Rome, you know, science versus religion. Um, you know, raising questions can be threatening to people in positions of power, not just political authorities, but certainly that, you know, political elites and to religious elites and to the scientific community. Um, uh, so, I mean, here's a man who was willing to, uh, for, to die for uh, his convictions, who claimed the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I mean, I pose this question to students uh, when we study, um, you know, Socrates, to better get a handle on the question, what is philosophy? Um, what, is there anything you'd be willing to risk your life for, let alone die for? Right. You know, and. Uh, I mean, most people uh, uh, have a hard time understanding something as abstract as the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. But uh, Socrates truly meant that. It, it's, uh, I think it's what makes us human. Yeah. Um, but uh, getting back to, you know, some of the points you were raising earlier, I think we have to recognize, and this is hard, you know, you said before, I believe, uh, that it's hard to live with doubt. Mm -hmm. But I think it's necessary because otherwise we're deluding ourselves into thinking that we have safe, secure, reliable answers. Right. Our truths, our truth in, or truths in scare quotes, calling it into question, should be provisional. Science is provisional. Yeah. It's always open to revision, and um, philosophy, Socrates teaches us, is not so much a product, not the answer, but the process. Right. And it's provisional, and everything is open to re-examination in light of more evidence, or, right. you know, uh, new ways of thinking about things. And I think arguably we all live with doubt, whether we're aware of it or not. I think right. people's right. dogma is a reaction to their right. doubt. Right, and it's how we it's how we uh, deal with it. Yeah. I mean, doubt uh, 
people in position of pow power um, often want to squelch doubt to reassure others that they're in good hands and that they're in the uh, that that uh, the people in power are um, give, providing them with safety and security by following right. the path that you know right. that they're moving on. And then when something is doubted, and if someone's, you know, have proved wrong, I mean, it could be a flaw, a chink that can erode one's faith or belief in the effectiveness of existing leadership. And, I mean, historically we've seen this in the Catholic Church with the notion of infallibility, and it took... Um, I think it was in 1992 when a pontifical academy of, of sciences of, in the Vatican, uh, more than 350 years after the trial and condemnation of, of uh, Galileo for advocating, uh, um, you know, a, a heliocentric uh, uh, cosmology, it took them that long to say that the Earth moved, Galileo was right. Yeah. Um, so, um, we need to be open to rethinking the things that, uh, that we believe. Right. I guess I want to shift gears a little bit, and I was wondering if you could talk about a professor or a teacher who had a particular impact on you. When I was a, um, an undergraduate, mm -hmm. Um, I had a history professor who um, who was uh, just very, very open to uh, his students mm -hmm. and was a very gifted teacher because of that um, being both curious and not caught up, his sense of himself was not caught up with his identity as a professor, as someone who had knowledge. He came across as someone who was a fellow seeker, mm -hmm. you know, and that curiosity and openness and, and love of what he was doing, you know, had a big impact on me. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, um, I really admired him, and um, and it it uh, you know he was a, a mentor in many ways, and uh, especially with research, let me follow my interests, mm -hmm. and and I think that was was important for me. Who's your favorite philosopher? If you have a favorite, I always like to expose students to um, to uh, some of the things that Bertrand Russell said, the 20th century uh, English philosopher who wrote a little work called The Problems of Philosophy. Mm -hmm. And in it, um, there's this terrific paragraph um, in the last chapter of this thin little volume that deals with 
the question of what is the value of philosophy. Right. And he says something along these lines. Contrary to what you'd expect, he says the value of philosophy is to be found in its very uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he said he subverts or undermines our normal way of thinking about things. Mm. And he says, you know, we want things generally to be definite and finite and obvious when, if they are, and we have the wrong answers, we're blocked, obstructed, and that can be destructive because we're not open to alternatives, other possibilities. Right. And so doubt and skepticism and uncertainty can be quite productive and, yes. and quite a good thing. Um, another philosopher who, um, whose work uh, I'm impressed by is, is the work of James Rachels, mm-hmm. who was a, um, an ethicist. Um, who's written a lot about moral thinking and moral values. And one of the things he said is you can um, show people through reasoning and arguments what is the case, what might be true and false, but you can't always get them to accept reason, yeah, you know, and I think that um, that really um, is borne out time and time and time again. Yeah. And uh, and the, one of the reasons I like Rachel's is because he's very accessible mm-hmm. and writes in a way that um, you know. makes clear or more transparent um, problems dealing with what's right and wrong to do and ethical theories uh, rather than, um, um, uh, you know, rights in a way that many philosophers um, and other academics do, mm. which is uh, opaque and, right. and, uh, and, and confused and, yeah. uh, and, and uh, throws more roadblocks mm-hmm. um, uh, than promoting clarity. Um, so he's a good writer, a clear writer. I mean, uh, one example, I mean, he wrote an essay, you know, when uh, the, the, the subject of euthanasia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the AMA um, decades ago took the position that um, given that, you know, uh, healthcare professionals take the Hippocratic Oath. Um, right as they uh, enter their profession, first do no harm. The notion is that to um, uh, engage in physician-assisted suicide uh, would be harming the patient by precipitating death. And um, Rachel's, you know, asks this simple question, um, which, you know, what is the difference between active euthanasia, where right. the doctor takes action to uh, bring about death, uh, granted uh, what's called a good death, mm-hmm. um, a death 
free of pain and suffering. You know, we're talking about cases where right. someone is terminal uh, versus passive euthanasia. Is there a moral difference or distinction between right. the two? And he said, um, uh, there is no moral distinction. One is not uh, 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 moral than, than, than the other. In fact, uh, or, or less moral than the other, you know, because the AMA takes the position that if you have a DNR, letting right. die would be acceptable for the physician. Right. But, but taking, you know, injecting them with morphine, which would suppress respiration and precipitate right. death in some cases, uh, w you know, wouldn't be acceptable. And Rachel's makes this point that. To not act, engage right. in passive euthanasia, is to make a choice that's an action, right. in effect. Right. And so there's no moral distinction, and, and passive euthanasia can be more painful yeah. and involve much more suffering. So let's be clear, and that to me epitomizes what philosophy is all about, asking questions, making you know, clear distinction through reasoning that promotes, um, uh, you know, answers through through reasoning. Mm -hmm. Something that I notice in philosophy is there are all these different theories and opinions, and they are often justified and reasoned equally as well. And so I think. My question is, with these competing philosophies, how do we find unity? That's a good question, and I mean, yes, there's reasoning involved, and we need to examine that. Right. Uh, one of the things that we need to do that philosophy helps yeah. to teach us to do is to examine the underpinnings, the underlying assumptions right. of the positions that partisans may hold, conservatives and liberals. Um, and also examine and look at the logical implications mm -hmm. of the positions which we hold. Often those are, I mean, especially looking at the assumptions or logical presuppositions, yes. we're talking about values, mm -hmm. people's values. And, yeah. excuse me, by examining the different partisan positions, I think we need to be open to unearthing, taking implicit or hidden values and making them bringing them to the surface, <laughs> discussing them, debating them, and making them explicit. So I think that's where philosophy can be very, very helpful. Um, and, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're just opening up a whole uh, can of worms. It might lead to, you know, hostilities and and arguments and debates and, well, that's all to the good. Um, I think we need to explore what our assumptions are and, and talk more about what our values are and debate them.
Um, in reading through the history of philosophy in preparation for this, what I found was a lot of the postmodern philosophy almost seems to be marked by a cynicism with, well, there is no truth. We yeah. can't know the truth. And I'm just curious about why you think that might have happened and what your response is to that. Well, I mean, some of it might come out of um, the movement in the 60s and 70s, well, ever since maybe, you know, at Oxford and Cambridge, the analytic analytic philosophy and, and logical positivism in the early 20th century out of Austria and Wittgenstein, you know, the, the notion that metaphysics and metaphysical questions, you know, uh, might have been uh, 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 a lame or mistaken uh, uh, turn or direction in <laughs> philosophy, asking questions that really didn't make sense, and right. we should um, we should uh, analyze our use of language uh, more, but um, more carefully, and that these were just uh, you know. Uh, Gilbert Ryle talks about category mistakes and the way the language that we use leading us to dead ends and insoluble problems. But um, I think that it's good to be attentive to our use of language. Right. And very often we're talking past one another because we think we have an understanding of what the other person is saying just because we might be using the same words. But, you know, we might be misunderstanding one another. Right. So that can be a good corrective. Right. Um, Do you think that some of the cynicism was in a response to that miscommunication? I, I think that might well yeah. be the case. Um... Moving towards a close, a question I want to ask you is, has there ever, or can you pinpoint a, a moment when, because you do seem in your teaching to come from a very, um, like you said, you appreciate the curiosity and the openness and of the professor who had the impact on you, and I'm just curious if there was a moment where you feel that you learned from a student or um, something. Always. That's such a good, uh, a good point, uh, John. I'm always learning from my students. Um, I'm always learning because of the questions that they raise. And there's always a tension in the classroom between the need to get through a curriculum and the students need to raise questions so that they can understand something more clearly. Um, that um, I, they ask questions which force me to look at things in a way that I hadn't seen them mm -hmm. and that I thought, you know, I understood something, but in light of a question they, they might raise or a thought they might have, um, it always opens things up to question and right. lead me to doubt something. So I, you know, have to go back and rethink right. what I thought I understood. And that, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, we always want comfort. We always want things settled, packaged, uh, tied up in, in a bow. Um, but it, 
life isn't that way. Yeah. You know, and that gets back to Russell and this mm. false certainty oh, that's obstructing God. and uh, narrowing and closes off possibilities. Right. Um, it's destructive rather than constructive. My final question is, if your students um, in any of your classes only walked away with one lesson, and it doesn't even need to necessarily be a, a lesson about philosophy, what would you want that to be? Don't accept things um, that you're told without questioning them. Mm. Um, and um, be open to mm. rethinking things that you thought you knew. Right. Don't treat education and life as a checklist to be gotten through by crossing one thing off after another and regarding it as settled. Right. Um, very little is settled and if you're going to um, uh, if you're going to uh, make your way through life you might as well do it with an openness to to alternative ways of thinking mm -hmm. um, and um, always recognize where your feelings are being engaged and feeling is good mm -hmm. but there needs to be a balance between thinking and feeling right. and that's why questioning, doubt, skepticism um, can be an important corrective mm -hmm. um, to, um, to feeling. They, they need to, to test each other. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much.